Good morning. I have the privilege this morning of continuing our series in 1 Corinthians, which is all about five big issues and five big ideas. And um, this morning, I do believe that God wants to set people free from envy and despair. I don't know whether those are things that plague you. I think they probably they plague all of us in differing ways. Father, I pray that as we look at your word, you would do what you so wonderfully love to do, which is that you would deal with our hearts. Pray you transform us. Thank you that you do that by the power of your spirit from the inside out. Come, soften our hearts, I pray. Soften our hearts. Prepare us for your work and have your way. Amen. This series as we have been describing it week by week as we've got going, is about how the gospel, that the book begins by describing, that is Jesus Christ crucified, makes a difference in so many different areas of our lives. Where there were divisions in the church, Christ's death means people come together. We're in the bit about sex at the moment, and then we're going to go on to look at food and culture and how we gather together and eternity. That's good, isn't it? Um, I have got the second chunk of this book uh, looking at what we do with our bodies and what that means for our sexual relationships. Last week, my headlines out of 1 Corinthians 5 and 6 were that sin matters and sin is forgiven. (laughs) It's what comes to us through the cross. And also, with that, our bodies matter. It says the very last verse of 1 Corinthians chapter 6 that... We were bought at a price. Our bodies are not our own. And it speaks about us being temples of the Holy Spirit. So there's something very important about our bodies. And we're going on now this morning into 1 Corinthians chapter 7, where Paul writes more about how we can honor God with our bodies. The passage that we're about to read is about uh, singleness and marriage. It's actually about widowhood as well as divorce and slavery and freedom along the way. Now, like any preacher that you can imagine, um, I'm keenly aware that I am not currently living all of these things. Um, And that does matter, and I'll explain a little bit more how I've tried to overcome that limitation of perspective that I have this morning. Um, Well... Let me give you a heads up. I've prepared for this morning through two kinds of listening. I have read and reread the text and tried to listen to our text carefully. I've also been listening carefully to a range particularly of single people across the church in diverse circumstances. Been much enriched by that and I hope that we'll all end up being enriched because of the input that I've had in the last week. Before we come to reading the text itself, I do want to note, uh, this is an ancient Greek portrayal of um, two people coming together. I do want to note that life in the ancient world, the Corinth, to which this letter was written, was really different, like really different to life today, and not least when it came to intimate relationships. One of the drivers for all of that was uh, mortality. Half of all children, it's 
been estimated, half of all children in the ancient world died before the age of six. And if children survived beyond the age of six, most men could expect to live to somewhere between 35 and 45. I'm 45 this summer. So I'm about as old and mature as you could expect. Some blessed by God would somehow get through their adult life without some kind of infection that became a sepsis that took their life, whatever it might have been. Women, due to a mixture of anemia and resulting diseases and due to the rigors of childbirth, could only really expect to live to somewhere between 25 and 35. Again, some wonderfully survived through all of that and lived a much longer life, but it was different to how life now is. And in that context, it shouldn't surprise us quite so much that girls usually married around the age of 14 and were frequently grandmothers by their 30s. When we read, as we will in a moment, about virgins in this passage, it's referring to girls aged 10 to 14. That's what that word was used to describe. The unmarried virgins, girls aged 10 to 14. Married at the age of 14 or so. Uh, Amongst Greeks and Romans, there were also massive differences between slave and free. It was common to buy female slaves simply for sexual exploitation. While women in rich families shared in the high social status and the intellectual opportunities enjoyed within their family. It's a... That last bit about rich people enjoying more, that sounds familiar. Most of the rest of it's really very different to the world that we live in. And I wanted you to have that in mind as we come to this text. And we're not going to read the whole of 1 Corinthians 7, but just as far as verse 31. If you have a Bible with you, I do encourage you to find the text and to read along. It's not going to appear on the screen. Paul starts by writing this. Now, for the matters that you wrote about, and he quotes the Corinthians, the Corinthians had been writing saying, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. That's what taken hold in the church in Corinth. They had embraced a kind of spirituality that said, the body doesn't matter. The truly spiritual won't worry about their bodily desires and needs. It is good really spiritual for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. And then Paul responds to that. He writes this, since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife. That means he should have sex with her. And likewise, the wife to her husband. The wife doesn't have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband doesn't have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. Do not deprive each other, 
except by mutual consent, and for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again, so that, the, so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession, not as a command. I wish that all of you were as I am, Paul writes. This is Paul, the unmarried man, saying, I wish you were all like me, unmarried. But each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. Now, To the unmarried and the widows, I say, it's good for them to stay unmarried, as I do. But if they cannot control themselves, they should marry, for it's better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married, I give this command, not I, but the Lord. A wife must not separate from her husband, but if she does... She must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and a husband must not divorce his wife. To the rest, I say this, not uh, I, not the Lord. I just want to note these things that are in brackets. You say, on the one hand, Paul says, not I, but the Lord. And the other one, he says, I, not the Lord. That does not mean that verses 10 and 11 are like super true, because it's the Lord and not Paul, and the next bit's a little bit optional. It's all scripture. The next, bit, the next bit, scripture as well. It's still the authoritative word of God. The difference between these two things is that in verses 10 and 11, Paul is repeating a teaching that has been passed on as having been spoken by Jesus. Whereas in the bit where he says, I, not the Lord, what he means is this isn't a tradition that's been passed on from when Jesus was teaching. This is something that Paul has got hold of with the help of the Holy Spirit uh, by himself, but with the Holy Spirit. It is God-breathed. So this isn't like some kind of second tier of, of Scripture we're about to read, just to be clear. To the rest I say this, I, not the Lord. If any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she is willing to live with him, he mustn't divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and he is willing to live with her, she mustn't divorce him. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, otherwise your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbeliever leaves, let it be so. The brother or the sister, is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. How do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? And how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Nevertheless, each person should live as a believer in whatever situation the Lord has assigned to them, just as God has called them. This is the rule I lay down in all the churches. Was a man already circumcised when he was called? He should not become uncircumcised. Now, just to be clear, I don't think they had a surgical procedure for that. What it means is it's about all of the habits of life that went along with being in those different social categories. But in case, oh, I was trying to stop you going down a rabbit hole of thought there. I may have made it worse. Was a man... Uh, uncircumcised when he was called, he shouldn't be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing. Keeping God's commands 
That's what counts. Each person should remain in the situation they were in when God called them. Were you a slave when you were called? Don't let it trouble you. Although if you can gain your freedom, do so. For the one who was a slave when called to faith in the Lord is the Lord's freed person. And similarly, the one who was free when called is Christ's slave. You were bought at a price. Don't become slaves of human beings. Brothers and sisters, each person as responsible to God should remain in the situation they were in when God called them. Now, about virgins. I have no command from the Lord, but I give a judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. Because of the present crisis, I think that it is good for a man to remain as he is. Are you pledged to a woman? Do not seek to be released. Are you free from such a commitment? Do not look for a wife. But if you do marry, you've not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she's not sinned. But those who marry will face many troubles in this life, and I want to spare you this. What I mean, brothers and sisters, is that time is short. From now on, those who, had wi- who have wives should live as if they do not. Those who mourn as if they did not. Those who are happy as if they were not. Those who buy something as if it were not theirs to keep. Those who use the things of the world as if not engrossed in them. For this world, in its present form, is passing away. Wow. What a lot we have to consider this morning. Uh, What I hope to do is to, to draw out from all of this seven clear principles, which, though we live in such different times to the church at Corinth, nonetheless, you will be able to see applying in in your life today. And actually, the first of those principles I'm going to draw from the last bit of the text that we've read, because it helps provide the context, because it's in verse 26 that Paul writes, advice in the light of the present crisis, which, which raises the question, what was the present crisis And this is where we're going to go in a minute. Um, Some people think that this crisis was a famine that had come upon that part of the world at that time, and that you could expect to see people starving, children starving. And in the light of all of that extreme circumstance, it was best just to keep life simple. But Paul actually goes on to explain more of his thinking by saying, actually, it's because the time is short. And this world as a whole, it's passing away. And so others have said, well, this phrase, the present crisis, it's not just about what was going on in that moment. It's about the fact that the whole world is passing away and coming to an end. It's worth noting that in other places, like his letter to Timothy in Ephesus... Paul gives different advice about marriage. Writing to Timothy, he says concerning young widows that they do well to marry. So there's something about the context that makes a difference. And yet, whatever the practical nature of the crisis in Corinth, Paul sees that crisis through a bigger lens, that of what we call the end times, 
Paul was alive to the fact that the world that we live in will end. Jesus will return. And here's the thing. We will live for all eternity under very different conditions. So here's the practical thing that you might take away from this. Make personal decisions in the light of the big picture. Don't only express your feelings and respond to your feelings about what it is that you would like to do right now. But by the grace of God, lift your eyes. See a bigger picture and make decisions about life now in the light of that bigger picture. A fortnight ago, I spent a whole morning talking about lifting our eyes to further horizons. So if that thought has come to you, if you weren't here a couple of weeks ago and that thought's come to you for the first time and you're like, oh, well, wish he's going to say more about that. I've done that plenty and I'm, I'm going to move on to some other things. But there's a bigger picture than just this, this moment. Here's the next thing, marriage. Verses 1 to 6, it's there again in verse 9. Marriage is valuable. This passage particularly teaches that it is a provision against sexual immorality. Of course, that's not the only thing that the Bible has to say about marriage. There are other good reasons for getting married (laughs) other than just that. Um, I'm going to move on quickly from this as well, because I don't think I need to labor the point that marriage is a valuable thing. I I think that is not something about which many people need to repent and change their minds. Uh, I do just want to note one thing, which is where it says in verses 4 and 5, that bit about your spouse having authority over your body. I just want to underline the fact that there's no warrant given there for any kind of coercion. No no warrant for taking the other's body and doing what you want to it. Just Just to be clear. What there is, is, rather, the command is to each person to yield, to to make a a choice to give. It's not, it's not about a, a warrant to take. It's, it's a command to give. Just seems worth saying. Let's keep going. In verse 7, there is this phrase. Each of you has your own gift from God. And then to make it clear, one has this gift, another has that. That is to say, there is a diversity of gifts. There's not just one way of life. God calls different people to live in different ways. And there's, uh, in particular, I'm uh, moving on, I so said this is a short point, just, it's in the text. In particular, here's another thing singleness is valuable. I don't know if you recognize that guy, many of you will. That's John Stott, who died not so long ago who is one of the most influential and helpful Christians of the late 20th century and early 21st century, who lived his life out as a single man and uh, has been an encouragement to many through his example of doing so. Singleness is valuable. That should be plainly obvious from the fact that Jesus himself was single, 
It may be made less obvious in the church by the fact that we have a constant stream of married people like me leading and preaching and so on that may distract from that obvious truth that Christ himself was a single man. And singleness is valuable. Actually, uh, here's some statistics for those of you that like infographics. Without Andy here, I thought I ought to make some effort. He's better at this than me, but... Currently, the latest estimate that I could find is that in England and Wales, about a quarter of all this is um, people aged over 16 are single in the sense of never having lived with um, another adult in a, a cohabiting or having been married, and obviously a number of people that are divorced or widowed. Um, something under half of all adults in England and Wales are, are married. In this last week, I asked 10 single people in the church to share with me their perspectives, their experiences, and uh, I have been hugely enriched by what has been shared with me. I saw things that I have never seen before, and I want to share some of them with you. Having taken time, just a, just a bit of time, to listen in preparing for this morning, there are some things I think we could do with all listening to together. And this is an amalgam of various things that have been shared with me. Here's the first thing. Uh, Please don't lump us all together. Singleness includes a great variety of people. There are some who are single by choice. There are others who are single by circumstance and would like to be married if they could be. There are those whose marriage has broken down and are now divorced and separated. There are those who are widowed. Don't assume that single people are waiting for the right spouse to come along. Some may feel called to celibacy. Some will be gay. Others will be women faced with the fact that there are many more Christian women than men. Uh, In church, please don't just link single people with other single people like that's a homogenous group that ought all to get on with each other. Please don't lump us all together. Secondly, it's not easy to be single. I think some find it harder than others. For some, being around families and children can be a painful reminder of what had been hoped for. Um, A couple of people wrote words to me this week to this effect. I find myself almost exclusively spending time with people of my own sex, and I miss the company of the other sex. Others saying, I seem to spend all my social time with other single people, and I miss the company of couples and of families. It can be hard. It's not easy to be single. Here's another thing about choice. That choice is, in fact, a complex thing. That it's not as simple as either choosing to marry or choosing to be single. For example, one woman's decision might actually be best described as that she chose not to compete with the other women for the few available men. (coughs) 
Here's a couple of quotes. I haven't chosen singleness as a lifestyle that I wanted above everything else, but I have chosen not to pursue other opportunities that were open to me because I didn't feel they were what God wanted for me. And in that sense, I've chosen singleness. Or someone else. In my 20s, I was taught that if you were single, you have a gift of celibacy. That stressed me out for some time, as the way it was taught implied that you were somehow then immune to your own desires and passions. And I was pretty sure that I didn't have such a useful-sounding gift. (laughs) I was confident, though, that I could choose to receive God's grace to empower me and to embrace a lifestyle that I still trust can bring honor to Jesus. It's quite a slow process for me preparing for this morning, because as I was reading and, and hearing these different things... Um, I was just so grateful for people's honesty with me. Um, And as I said, feeling enriched and my perspective altered. I hope the same thing's going on for you. Someone else wrote to me, the gift of singleness is not one that suddenly appears in some Christians' lives, like the gifts of prophecy or speaking in tongues. It doesn't magically make all feelings of loneliness and insecurity disappear. But you can make a choice to cultivate it like any other gift. Okay, a bit complex. And singleness changes with age. In your, 20, in your 20s, loads of people are single and often living in shared houses, and there are plenty of people around who can provide you mutual support and give you time. Uh, many Christians only, have only personally known that season of singleness and have absolutely no concept of what it looks like, to, what it is like to be single beyond your 20s. That category includes me. In your 30s, the number of people who are single is diminishing and married couples are having children. You're more likely to be living on your own or with only one flatmate. There are fewer single, single people. Your married friends don't have time for you anymore and it can start to feel lonely. By the time you reach your 40s, it can be incredibly lonely. And it requires a huge amount of effort Because you have to be the one who is constantly initiating, even when you don't feel like it. Whether that's asking umpteen people until you eventually find someone who wants to go and see the same film as you at the cinema. Or being the one who has to do the travel to see old friends because they can't travel because they have children. You have to learn to be independent in a way that you might not want. Some describe to me how by your 40s, desire may have shifted. And rather than being a desire for wanting a partner, it may have changed to a new desire. Or not changed. Let me be accurate. A single person may have discovered a new desire to grow in loving God and loving others well. There's There's something new there for them. 
at that stage of life. I was given this, this uh, advice very clearly. Don't sit on the bench. Don't live your life if you're a single person like you're in a waiting room, waiting to be married before life can really start. You are complete as you are. You are complete as you are. Follow the adventure of faith that God has for you. And then here's something really for all of us to pay attention to. It helps if people listen well. People are single for a lot of reasons. I've already said so. And have lots of different feelings about their singleness. Married people sometimes think that all single people are looking for a solution to their singleness and that they can help best by sharing whatever it was that led to their own marriage. More prayer, laying it before the Lord, internet dating, making a real effort to flirt at church meetings. (laughs) What I've heard clearly this week is that what single people firstly need is a listening ear uh, to actually hear the question that's being asked, which might not be, how do I find a spouse? It might be, am I unlovable? Or it might be, what does the future look like for me? If nothing else, my hope is that, well, I have a lot of hopes for this morning, but um, God, would you help us to listen And I do want to pray that where, as a community, as a church, there are certain stories and certain messages that take up more of the airwaves and others that go unheard. Lord, help us to listen. I pray, help us to listen. Thank you that you've made each one of us complete as we are. Help us to listen, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if that wasn't enough, then the passage speaks about divorce. What does it say about divorce? It says that a marriage covenant should not be broken. Verses 10 to 11 say, you must not separate and remarry. Verses 12 to 13 say, you mustn't leave someone because they're not following Christ. And in verse 14, there's an encouragement that you don't need to fit. If you are in what we might call a mixed marriage, that is, you are married to someone who's not following the Lord, you don't have to fear that they will somehow pollute your spirit. Paul says, it's not like that. It's the other way around. A Christian's holiness is strong and stable And it has an impact on the spouse who's not a Christian. You don't know what that impact will end up being, but you needn't fear. To sum up those differing teachings, we, those who are in a marriage covenant, should not break that marriage covenant. Uh, It is recorded in the Gospels that Jesus said something very much like this, you shouldn't divorce. Uh, and then gave a reason why divorce is permitted. In Matthew 9, 19 and verse 9, it says that divorce is permitted following adultery and infidelity. And that's because if a spouse commits adultery, they have violated the covenant, and, and the covenant is altered by that violation. 
and you may divorce in that circumstance, but the, the, the teaching of Christ is consistent with what Paul teaches here, that we ourselves ought not to break or to violate the marriage covenant. It, the covenant may be violated by our spouse, but we ought not to do so. And Paul then goes on to consider how all of that applies in, in, in a mixed marriage. He said, what, it, what he imagines the situation that your uh, partner, your spouse who does not follow Christ's teaching has enough of you and sends you away. And what he says there is, if you are sent away, then you're not bound. In the same way that in Jesus' teaching, if you are betrayed through adultery, if you are betrayed through infidelity, similarly, you are not bound. There is a ground for divorce. There are two grounds given for divorce in these teachings. Uh, One is adultery or infidelity, and the other is desertion by an unbeliever. Let me be as clear as as I can. On the basis of this teaching, uh, you may live separately from your spouse. So in the case that your spouse is abusing you, for example, you may live separately. To, To move out and live separately is one thing. The word divorce specifically pronounces a formal end to the marriage covenant allowing for a new covenant then to be made afterwards. There is a difference between separation and divorce. And if we put this together with what we've just read about not breaking the marriage covenant, perhaps we could sum it up by saying, you can accept the end of a covenant, but you should not act so as to end that covenant. You shouldn't be the one that violates and breaks it you may be in a position where you need to accept that it has been broken. Those who have suffered divorce in whatever circumstances can feel a mountain of guilt alongside what is a profound bereavement. Many people facing divorce speak of it as the biggest crisis they've ever faced often made worse by the way in which it isolates you and leaves you feeling lonely, being lonely. Um, I learned that Holy Trinity Brompton, who started the Alpha course that's going on this morning, uh, also have a course to help people recover from divorce and separation. Now, I'm not aware that that course is running anywhere in Oxfordshire, But I have discovered that the substance of that course can be found in the book on the left-hand side here called Restored Lives. And the subtitle, if you can see it there, is Recovery from Divorce and Separation. If this is something, whether whether it's personal to you or as for a whole load more of us, there are people that are dear to us who've been walking through the, the pain, the bereavement, the crisis of a separation I do want to recommend that book to you. The book on the right-hand side is a similar kind of a book, Growing Through Divorce. And I want to read to you a few things that, this, that Jim Smoke's book starts by saying, 
If you get to the point in your marriage where you feel that divorce is inevitable, what you might do, he writes this, stop long enough to commit your entire situation to God through prayer. Call your best friends and ask them for prayer and support. Stay in touch with your feelings. Share your feelings with people you trust. Don't panic. Remember that whatever happens, God is in charge. And I might add, he loves you. Uh, Also, contact a lawyer so you know where you stand legally. You don't have to take the lawyer's advice, but it's helpful to know. And then this point he makes, remember that healing takes time. There is no quick fix for divorce. Healing takes time. I have wrestled with the fact that these are weighty matters. And um, I, I want just to slow down, but I need to finish the passage. Um, there's going to be some time and space in a few minutes that if any of these many weighty and challenging things in the text are landing heavily with you, uh, there's going to be some time and space to pray. I want to finish by drawing attention to the what's in verses 17 to 24. And if we could move on to the next slide, please. It's to note this, that every situation in life, or to use the language that Paul used earlier in verse 7 about gifts, every gift, every gift that God gives us brings its own difficulties. Paul is clear that marriage would bring difficulties for the Corinthians. And the same is true today. Celibacy also brings difficulties. Slavery, which is mentioned in the passage, certainly brings difficulties. Every situation brings difficulties. And yet, here we have another application of the cross of Christ, which is that Christ's death brings freedom. And it's not a freedom that depends on our circumstances. It's a freedom and a blessing that is gifted to us by what Christ has done at the cross. Paul would later write to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 3 and verse 17, where the Spirit of the Lord is, and they were known as a church with lots of Holy Spirit stuff, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. There's a promise here. Verse 22 in this passage, Paul writes, The one who was a slave when called to faith is the Lord's freed person. And that is specifically a promise that there is freedom for all of us in all circumstances, a freedom for all of us to live God's way, whatever circumstances we find ourselves in. And verse 19, Paul writes, Keeping God's commands is what counts. I was reminded of the very first few verses in the book of Psalms. Blessed is the one who doesn't walk in step with the wicked or stand in the company that sinners t- in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers. Blessed is the one whose delight is in the law of the Lord. That person 
is like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. To put it differently, it's possible to bloom wherever you're planted. There's a little picture. You can flourish now. Whatever situation you're in, there is a grace from God for you that, as we sang earlier about the joy of the Lord being our strength, as we sang about nothing comparing to the promises that we have in God, it's where the rubber hits the road, isn't it? Do we receive those truths through a lens that says, well, thank you, Lord, but I think I'll only be really happy when I've got out of this marriage? Or got into that marriage, (laughs) whatever it may be. I've got free from this slavery, gained new employment. Um, Like um, Bev encouraged us earlier, the Lord himself is our inheritance. And what this passage does is it brings that center stage and it says, will the Lord be enough for us? Will the Lord be enough for us? And the promise is that he will. Nothing compares to the promise we have in him. And my prayer is that out of all of that, wherever we start this morning, he'll lead us to a place where we can indeed sing for joy. And we receiving his power to flourish. Gentlemen are conferring. Uh, as they're conferring, Father, I pray for anyone for whom this text, and what I've said from it, Um, It's particularly challenging this morning for a whole variety of reasons. Lord, I pray that anything that I've said that's nonsense would fall away. I pray, God, that the truth of your word would do us good. And I pray for flourishing for everyone here. I started by saying that I believe God wants to set people free from envy and despair. I hope it's clear now why I thought that, that would, we'd get to that point. And I pray, God, for freedom from those things that tug at our hearts and pull us to the wrong places. I pray for freedom from depression and despair in Jesus' name. Set us free by the power of your Spirit, I pray. Amen.